0: Uh, If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that's under your chair, uh, that's going to be on page 977. If not, if you're using another Bible, it's getting toward the end there. It's about maybe halfway or so through the New Testament. In his uh, famous book, it was very famous about 15 years ago. Some of you may have read it called Seven Habits of, the, of Highly Effective People. Uh, in that book, author Stephen Covey, he talks about something called the scarcity mentality. The scarcity mentality. And he says this, most people are deeply scripted in what I call the scarcity mentality. They see life as having only so much as though there were only one pie out there. And if someone were to get a big piece of the pie, it would mean less for everybody else. The scarcity mentality is the zero sum paradigm of life. People with a scarcity mentality have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit, power or profit, even with those who help in the production. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. So this this scarcity mentality can appear in different ways. It can show up in our wallets. You know, we want to acquire as much money As we possibly can, and we'll be a little more stingy in giving it away because if we give more away than we have, there's gonna be less for us. There's a finite amount. We can't, we we want as much for us as we possibly can. It can show up in our time. So maybe we struggle to offer our time to others because then we might not have enough time for ourselves to do the things that that we actually want to do. But here's what I wanna invite us to consider this morning that, that when this scarcity mentality manifests itself, particularly as it manifests itself in our pursuit to love other people, it's going to constrain our ability to care and to serve and to genuinely love others. Because compare contrast the scarcity mentality with what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. There's There's this scene where Jesus is preparing his disciples to be sent out. He's commissioning them to go through all these villages and towns throughout first century Palestine. And he says this to them as he sends them. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And then this key phrase, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus makes this direct connection between recognizing what you've received and then how you offer what you have as a response to that. And what the disciples were, were meant to hear in that, what we're meant to hear in that today is that we've been given this abundance of good gifts from God. And that's, that's meant to guide the way in which we give of ourselves and give of the gifts that we have and our time and our money and our resources to, to others. So as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians this fall, we started about a month ago now, we continue in the series through Advent, we've read a lot in this book about God's grace. These inexhaustible, immeasurable riches of God's grace that he pours out on his people, and he does that from eternity past to eternity future. And none of that is earned or or merited by, by us. We don't earn any of that. Grace, by definition, is an undeserved gift. It's an unmerited favor from God. And we, like these 12 disciples who are commissioned by Jesus there in Matthew 10, we have received freely from this abundance of God's grace. And the more that we recognize that, the more that we grasp just how much we've freely received from God, it's going to combat this strong pull that each of us inevitably feels toward a scarcity mentality in the way that we pursue love for other people. I came across a, a quote by a theologian named Klein Snodgrass this week, and he says this. He's talking about ministry, and when he talks about ministry, he's not talking about vocational ministry. he's talking about just really the pursuit to, to love and care for other people. And he says this, ministry is the free flow of grace from God through us to other people. Ministry is the free flow of God's grace or of grace from God through us to other people. So, so God's grace, flows down, it does something in us, it does something to us, and then that same exact grace keeps on flowing through us outward to other people. And as we look at Ephesians 3 this morning, we're going to see a flesh and blood example of what this looks like in the life of the Apostle Paul. In what initially here, as we read it, you'll see it, it initially seems like a little tangent. Paul's been talking about Um, He's been praying for the Ephesians. He's been talking about the peace that they have with God through Jesus. And then he kind of takes this sidestep to talk about himself. And it seems like a tangent, but what he's doing here is seizing an opportunity to explain how this free flow of God's grace is central to his own life and to his ministry among the Gentile people, the Ephesian people specifically. So let's, um, let's look for that. As we make our way through Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, uh, and you can follow along with me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence Through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. God, we want to be the recipients of your grace. And often we we also want to be the conduits of your grace. We want to we want to pour your grace out from ourselves to others. And yet, we fight a scarcity mentality in that, and we're resistant for whatever reason. And so I pray, God, that this morning you would use your word, you would use what Paul has written down in Paul's own life uh, to to show us how your grace flows freely and how that's that's done work in us and transformed us and how that's meant to flow through us to others. Would you bring to mind for us even specific ways that we need to, to wrestle with and grasp this truth to live in light of it? So do that work in us by your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as Paul here is, is reflecting on the free flow of God's grace to him and then through him, he speaks about two different things that, the, that this free flow of God's grace entails. And it's not an exhaustive list. We could really talk about how God's grace flows from a, a ton of different vantage points. But the vantage point that Paul uses in this particular text includes these two things. A revealed mystery and suffering. So the flow of God's grace is going to involve a revealed mystery and, and suffering. So first, let's talk about the revealed mystery. If there's going to be this, this flow uh, of grace, it's going it's to involve both a receiving and a, a giving. So picture, if you will, if it's helpful, um, a rain barrel that you might use to water your garden. That rain barrel collects water from somewhere, collects it directly from the sky, collects it from your gutters, wherever it comes. And then you attach a hose and a spigot to it, and you open up the valve, and that water flows from that barrel to, to the garden. There's this receiving and this giving that happen sometimes at the same time. But Paul is describing something like that here in this passage. God's given Paul grace for the Ephesians. He says that God has given grace to me for you. So Paul is is a recipient of that, but it's not meant to be just for Paul. It's not meant to terminate on him. It's meant to flow through him to these other men and women to whom he's, he's writing. And a specific component of that grace is this revealed mystery. Paul has received, he says, a revelation into the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. It's this mystery that's not been known in previous generations, but now by the work of the Holy Spirit, has been made known. Okay, what is this mystery that wasn't known previously, but has been made known now? It's right there in verse 6. That the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It may not seem like it to our ears, as we're distant from this culturally, but this is a a world-changing revelation. There was such a massive dividing wall between Jewish and Gentile people in the first century, and we heard Paul talk about that in the passage that we looked at last week. A lot of that dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles was was outright racism, was a superiority complex, was overt hostility. As we saw last week, the Jews had taken this position of, of privilege as God's chosen people And they had had warped that, that platform, that platform that was given to them by God to be used to bless all peoples of the world. They had warped that into a platform from which to demean other peoples of the world, to distance themselves from other peoples of the world. So a lot of this dividing wall that existed there was sinful, but part of that dividing wall was actually built into the way that God was working out his plan of redemption in the unfolding of history. So prior to the revelation of this mystery of Christ, the Jews were the people of God. If you were going to talk about the people of God, you were talking about specifically the nation-state people group of the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if someone wanted to be part of God's people, then they needed to become Jewish. They needed to adopt Jewish culture. They needed to adopt all of the aspects of the Mosaic law, the law given from God through Moses. And not just the moral components of that, the morality of the law, but also the, the ceremonial and the sacrificial laws and all the other laws that that entailed. So what emerged over time was this entire subset of people around the Mediterranean known as God-fearers. God-fearers. There were, these were, uh, were Gentile men and women who believed in uh, and worshipped this one true God. They worshipped the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Jewish people. But they themselves weren't Jewish. They weren't among God's chosen people. Now, they were, oftentimes, in close proximity to God's people. But they weren't participants. And the huge difference that the revelation of this mystery makes is is so huge because there's a major difference between proximity and participation. There's a huge difference between proximity to the people of God and participation among the people of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's love for peoples of all nations, his love for Gentile peoples. There are references to God's plan to include people from all nations among his chosen people. One really fascinating example comes in the book of Isaiah, chapter 19. The prophet Isaiah says this, he says, in that day... Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So, Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands. The reason this is particularly dramatic as an example is because Egypt was the nation that enslaved the Israelites, for 400 years. They are the historic enemy of God's people. Assyria, at the time that Isaiah was writing that, that a couple years prior, had come in, had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, had exiled those people to other nations. These are enemies to the people of God historically. And still, God speaks of Egypt and Assyria being among his people. But nobody knew how this was going to come about. Nobody knew how these, these other nations were going to become part of God's people until this, until the mystery of Christ is revealed. And now, as we saw last week, this this the law is abolished as the basis for experiencing the salvation of God. And simply by faith in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, people from all cultures and heritages and tongues and tribes can become fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of of the promise of, of God. So this is this is why it's so huge. This is why it's such a big deal. It's the fulfillment of all of the work that God has been doing for centuries. This isn't God ditching one plan and doing something completely opposite. He's not doing something completely different. As Paul says here in verse eleven, this is God's eternal purpose. It's been realized. In Jesus, And as he says there in verse 9, it's the God who created all things. It's the same God, and it's what that God has always planned to do. The specifics of how he was going to do that have been hidden for generations, but now have been made known. And here's the big thing that Paul connects it to in his own life. Making it known is the whole point. To make it known is the whole point. There's an important difference here between what Paul says when he says the word mystery and what our ears in our culture often hear when we hear the word mystery. Uh, mystery in our culture and our language carries a connotation often as some kind of secret knowledge that only a few are given access to. It's like a, like a riddle or a puzzle that you have to solve. Think of like mystery novels. But a mystery, as Paul is writing about it, what that meant in his culture and language It wasn't a puzzle to be solved. It was a truth to be revealed. It was something that was once hidden or something that was once obscure that has now been made known. So it's not reserved for some elite group of people that are smart enough to to figure it out. It's meant for all people everywhere to know and to understand. It was dark. It was obscure. It was blurry. It's now been brought into the light that all might see. And this is why part of the free flow of God's grace involves Paul continuing to reveal that mystery. He doesn't hide it. We see from his life, he doesn't go about the Mediterranean like scattering clues, like some kind of scavenger hunt. Like maybe if you you make your way through all these different cities, you'll find the full picture of what this means. Now he proclaims, he proclaims the revealed mystery. He heralds it. He travels thousands of miles around the known world so that as many people as possible might know. And central to Paul's ministry and mission is passing on this revealed mystery to not only the Gentiles who benefit from it, but the Jews. He passes that along to to both. And he's received this revelation, and as the free flow of grace continues, he passes along that revelation. Now, here's what we need to see and apply to our lives as Paul is doing that. Just as was the case for the first century Gentiles, Proximity to the people of God is not enough. Proximity to the people of God is not enough. We're actually invited, and all people are invited, to be participants among God's people. Partakers of his promises. Part of this one new humanity that's being created by Jesus in place of the many divided peoples but the problem is a lot of our language, a lot of our actions in the in the church today broadly, they can become exclusively focused on helping people experience God's kingdom. And what I mean by that is experience the tangible benefits of the kingdom of God, um, being served, being cared for in, in tangible ways, um, efforts to, to meet needs, to be agents of God's mercy and God's justice in the world. And all of that is absolutely part of the outworking the free flow of god's grace it's just not enough it just misses a critical component because to experience god's kingdom is is beautiful but it's not the same as entering god's kingdom yourself and the whole point of paul's words here is that it's now through jesus possible for all people to enter god's kingdom which means that then following the example of people like paul We need to proclaim the mystery that's been revealed, not just serve other people in light of it. Here's another way to think about that. Don't just settle for proximity when participation has been purchased by Jesus. Don't just settle for proximity when participation has been purchased by Jesus. And we take that for granted so much in our day and age because none of us were alive even remotely close to the era when there was this huge dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and where you had to become Jewish in order to experience the salvation of God. But here's where our own, you know, warped misunderstanding and inconsistency comes through in this. Most of us, probably nearly everyone in this room, is a Gentile, by heritage, by by birth. We're not from a Jewish family or a Jewish lineage. Maybe some of us are. And yet, as Gentiles, we who have been made participants through the work of Jesus become content for other people to only be in proximity to God's people. And here's the big idea. May may we never leave people on the outside of a divided wall that has been broken down by Jesus. May we never leave people on the outside of this dividing wall that's been broken down by Jesus. May we instead invite them to be participants by proclaiming this revealed mystery. So the free flow of God's grace involves a revealed mystery. Second, it also involves suffering. It involves suffering. One of the biggest sources of disillusionment among Christians is the amount of suffering that's involved in the Christian life. Especially when we think about something like the free flow of, of God's grace. It's easy, I think, for us to carry around a really idyllic notion of, of what the free flow of God's grace through us is going to look like. We get excited about God's grace working through us, and then we start to think, man, that's going to be sweet. That's going to be pleasant. Maybe it's going to be hard work, but we don't necessarily think about it being painful or or costly. Before I was a a pastor, um, I worked on the staff of an organization that sent missionaries uh, around the world um, to serve in a variety of different capacities, to plant churches, different, different kinds of things. And in our recruitment process for new missionaries, we actually saw this quite a bit, uh, particularly among younger men and women who were just kind of in that season of coming out of high school, coming out of, out of college. Um, God's grace had met these people, and often in a really profound and substantial way, their life had been dramatically changed by, God's, by God uh, just pouring his grace out into them. And they had this beautiful response. They they had this deep desire that had emerged in them to use their lives for things that mattered, which is right and, and good. And so going with one of our teams to a foreign nation, setting up shop there, trying to share the gospel with people so that they might believe, trying to disciple people, trying to plant churches, that was really appealing to them. But they had no idea, in many cases, they had no idea how many missionaries burn out in the first couple of years on the field? And they had no idea how many teams experience intense conflict to the point that somebody leaves and goes home. And they had no idea the toll that it takes to do full time ministry in a culture that's not your own, halfway around the world apart from family and friends. And they had no lo- idea how long it takes to see any kind of fruit emerge from all the work that you do. It often takes a really long time. And even then, you often never see the kind of fruit that you imagine or long that you would see, you would see when, you, when you go in the first place. But here's the thing about the free flow of God's grace. The only way that you and I receive God's grace in the first place is through the suffering of another. So why would we ever expect that we'll be a conduit of that same grace and pass it along to others without suffering ourselves in some way? The grace of God always flows freely through suffering. And Paul's life is exhibit A of this. As he speaks here of being a steward of God's grace, as he speaks of passing on the revelation of this mystery that he's received, where is he? He's in prison. He's in prison. And after becoming a recipient of God's grace, Paul, the story of his life is a story filled with suffering. It's an often overlooked part of Paul's conversion, is that when he arrives in Damascus, you know, he's on the road to Damascus. He gets blinded. He meets Jesus. He's blinded. He finally makes his way to Damascus. There's a man in Damascus named Ananias. And God tells Ananias, Go and take care of Paul. And Ananias says, That sounds like a terrible idea. Have you heard what this guy does to people like me? And God says, You know what? Go. This man is my chosen instrument. And then here's the part that often gets overlooked. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul here is in prison precisely because of the free flow of God's grace to him and then through him. And when he proclaims that all people can be part of God's people through the work of Jesus, through faith in the work of Jesus, he incites hatred, he incites opposition from the Jewish people. They don't, in, in, the, in this culture where the dividing wall was still very much a real thing, they don't want the Gentiles to be of equal standing before God. So they try to kill Paul, and eventually they bring a legal case against him which leads to his imprisonment, which is where we find him when he writes this letter. And if that weren't enough opposition by itself, as a Jewish man traveling around to Gentile peoples, Paul's missionary journeys are filled with accounts where he receives opposition and hostility from the people that he's trying to minister to. In Ephesus... He was writing this letter to the Ephesians in Ephesus. While he was actually there in Ephesus some years prior to this, Paul's preaching that there was only one true God led to a citywide riot. Because in that city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, this goddess of the Ephesians. It was one of The, the temple itself was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people from all over the globe flocked there to worship this false god. And so Paul, showing up, saying that Artemis was a false god, it was really bad for tourism. It was really bad for the Artemis statue business. And so some business people incite this riot against Paul. So while serving as this conduit of the grace of God that, that, that is actually meant to unite these two groups of people, Paul is constantly experiencing hostility from both at the same time. But that's what we can't miss. This is the way that the grace of God is brought to bear on the lives of other people. God's grace flows freely, but it flows freely through suffering. And that's how you and I have received grace from God. Jesus secures God's grace for us through his own suffering. And that's not a secondary or or some kind of minor point of the gospel. That is core to what the gospel message is. That's core to the good news of what Jesus has done. 1 Peter 2.24 says it this way. He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We were dead, as Paul said in Ephesians 1, but we've been made alive. We were broken, but we have been healed by the suffering of Jesus his suffering is the path through which this inexhaustible well of God's grace is opened to flow freely to us and then to flow freely through us. And in turn, there's there's not some other alternative kind of path through which we become those conduits of God's grace to other people. Any kind of genuine love for another person is going to entail suffering. If If I love my wife, which I do, if I love my wife, that means that I will suffer. I will suffer on her behalf. You know, I'll go to bat for her, I'll suffer for her. But I'll also suffer because of her. If I actually love her, it means she can actually hurt me. And vice versa. The same with my little girls. You know, and all of you who are, who are parents out there, parents who love their kids, they suffer at the hands of their kids. And they suffer directly you know, your kid tells you they don't like you or love you. They don't want anything to do with you. You suffer directly. You suffer indirectly because you feel the consequences of their actions probably just as much as they do in some, in some ways. Family relationships are marked by suffering. Genuine friendships are marked by suffering. And any kind of fruitful ministry in the lives of other people is marked by, human, is it marked by uh, suffering of human beings. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Two things for us to see in this. First, we should expect suffering. We should expect this. Let's not be surprised by suffering when it comes. Let's go in with our eyes a little bit wider open to what the Christian life entails. To be a Christian is to participate in this free flow of God's grace. We receive it, but we also become conduits of that grace to other people. That's not an optional Part of the Christian life. It's not an optional component of following Jesus. But like Jesus tells his own disciples, we've got to count the cost. We need to follow him with a more realistic expectation for how much suffering is going to be involved in that. So we expect the suffering, but second, as we count the cost, we should count the cost as worth it. We should count the cost as worth it. Because to receive God's grace... To become a a conduit of God's grace is worth the suffering that comes with it. There's immense purpose in this suffering, and we see it here in Ephesians 3. See, not only is this the path through which God's grace flows, it's the path to glory. It's the path to glory. And so Paul concludes his thought here in verse 13 by saying, don't lose heart over my suffering on your behalf. Why? Because it's for your glory. It's for your glory. What does he mean? Well, through Jesus' suffering, Jesus secures God's grace for us, and and that grace, as God pours it out, will rescue us, but it also will keep us and will sustain us until our life is over and we experience being glorified with Jesus for all of time. And likewise, as God's grace flows through our suffering into the lives of other people, it brings that same glory to bear on their lives. And that's worth it. And that's worth it. As Jesus deemed it worth it to to secure our grace and to secure our glorification through his suffering, may we also deem it worth it to suffer that God's grace and God's glory might be made known in the lives of other people. Now, as we realize and experience this free flow of God's grace, this will deal a death blow to our scarcity mentality in the way we pursue loving other people. So when we encounter texts like Ephesians 3, let's be renewed. Let's be renewed in many ways, but let's be renewed to put away our selfish and our stingy impulses in how we offer ourselves and how we offer what God has given us so freely for the good of others. Because what Paul is saying here, what Paul is exemplifying here in his own life, it's the opposite of a scarcity mentality. And he even talks elsewhere about not only sharing the message of the gospel, but sharing his very self with the people that he ministers to. And why he, why he can say that, why, he, why he's doing this here in Ephesians, is because there is more than enough of God's grace. There's more than enough of God's grace. It's the unsearchable Riches. It's the immeasurable riches. It's the inexhaustible well. So there's grace enough for you. And will we, will we be renewed to see that this morning? There's grace enough for you. No matter how distant you feel from God or how far outside of his reach you might feel like you are, there is grace to meet you right where you are at. There's enough grace for you. There's also enough grace for everybody else. There's not just one finite pie that if you get too much of the peace, somebody else can't have theirs. So we need not hoard God's grace. We need not stockpile it as if it were some kind of limited resource. In fact, in God's kingdom, attempting to to hoard or stockpile God's grace, having the scarcity mentality and refusing to become a conduit of that where we carry God's grace into the lives of others, that actually stunts our own experience of God's grace to us. We'll never see how deep His well of grace really goes unless we trust Him enough to pour out what He's given us and trust that He'll continue to fill us up with more. And even more than that, there's grace enough to sustain you and to comfort you when you suffer as a conduit of His grace to others. So we will suffer. You will suffer. But there's more than enough of God's grace to carry you as you do being confident of this free flow of God's grace. May we pour it out. May we pour it out freely we have received. So may we freely give. May we continue to proclaim the revealed mystery of Christ and may we suffer well because suffering itself is the path through which the grace of God flows. is a good and necessary word for me and for us this morning we want to receive your grace we want to pour it out on others and yet there's a cost and there's pain involved in that and that is the path through which your grace always comes and we see in that we see no better example of that the work of Jesus and would you again astonish us at the the immeasurable riches of your grace when we look at this at your table and we come to your table this morning. That you have enough grace for us to send your son, that he might suffer, that we might experience your grace, that we might be conduits of your grace. And so coming to this table, may it be for us even our own small taste and renewed experience of that flow of grace to us through the work of Jesus. And then as we are sent back into the world today, through us for the good of others. You've been gracious to us. You have been merciful to us, God. May we celebrate that well today.